Hi, it's Carolina. I'm so excited that you could join us on the City Point Redcliffe podcast. You're just about to hear a message from one of our incredible preaching team, and I know you're going to be encouraged and inspired by what you hear. If it does encourage you, why don't you share it with someone who you know might need to hear it as well? And make sure you subscribe so you don't miss any of the messages that are uploaded every single week. And for now, sit back and enjoy. I hope you get blessed. So I've been a Christian for about five years now, and um, I've been really blessed to be in workplaces where there's just people who have really well thought out objections to Christianity. Um, and that might, seem, might not seem like a blessing, that's okay. Um, but what I've found is that as I've wrestled with these objections against Christianity, as I've been forced to sort of uh, withdraw and, and seek after God with my mind, that my faith has grown a lot stronger, right? I've been much more built up in the things of God. I'm much less... Um, nervous in, in sharing the gospel with people because I feel well equipped, right? Um, so that's what I hope happens tonight. Hey, um, I do understand that just by saying the word apologetics, we've probably got three camps of people in the room, right? There's the camp of people who are just like, man, confrontation is bad. I don't know why you would do that. Um, isn't it enough to just like preach the gospel always and use words when necessary? Um, like, isn't, isn't the gospel enough? Why do we need to also understand this thing called apologetics? What does that word even mean? Um, camp one, just want to say love you guys. Really glad you're here. Um, I hope that tonight gets a bit of hunger in you guys. Um, <laughs> I don't, no, I do love you guys. Um, uh, if you want to dive a bit more into this, a couple names to throw out. Um, there's this guy, Pastor Mike Winger. Uh, he's got a YouTube channel, does a lot of different stuff, does apologetics really well. Um, there's another one that I'm, oh yeah, Dr. William Lane Craig, absolute boss, uh, does a bunch of um, like philosophical apologetics, top bloke, check him out. Um, third one is N.T. Wright, uh, just writes, really thoughtful bloke, um, really approachable uh, way of addressing Christianity. So check out those three if you're in camp one. Camp two, you guys are sold out on apologetics, love to preach the gospel, get excited when somebody comes up with an objection that you haven't heard before. Um, I love you guys, I'm glad you're here. I hope that tonight is going to build your faith up a little bit. Maybe I'll throw out a couple of names that you haven't heard before, a couple of ideas that you haven't thought about. Um, so I really hope that um, tonight just reignites a bit of fire in you for apologetics. Camp three, atheists. How good, welcome. Um, <laughs> Love you guys, really glad that you're here. Um, if you thought that the church is where good thought comes to die, um, so good, you've not picked a better night. Um, I really pray that as we sort of address some common objections to Christianity and also dive into a bit of a positive case for Christianity, I pray that you'll really thoughtfully consider the evidence for Christianity, because um, it is pretty strong, spoilers. Um, so good. So uh, the title of the message tonight is A Case for Christianity. Um, I find that in these conversations, uh, it's really helpful to, to define some terms, right? Because otherwise, uh, you can sort of find yourself talking past each other, maybe you're defending something that you don't believe. Um, so I've, I've got a couple of definitions, and we've got a whiteboard coming. So if we can get a slow clap coming for that. So good. How did this get there? Oh, there's a dude behind it. How good. Um, yeah, these are not airtight definitions, uh, but this is just like a, a helpful working understanding of, of what is it that we're trying to defend, what is Christianity, and what does it mean to be a Christian, right? Um, so, not airtight, if you disagree with me, that's okay, I still love you. Um, so, what is Christianity? Christianity is the belief that a man named Jesus claimed to be God, was crucified, resurrected, proving his claim, and that through him we have eternal life. What is a Christian? So a Christian is somebody who has their faith in Jesus, who believes this, who's been made a new creation and lives um, as a disciple of Jesus, growing in the things of God. 
So uh, leading up to this message, I uh, posted a couple of Instagram stories. You guys might have seen it. Uh, the first one was, if you're a Christian, what's like the most common objection you get against Christianity? And uh, the second one was, if you're an atheist, what's your best objection to Christianity? So we're just going to take a run out just to tonight. Hey, we'll, just, um, we'll see how many we can get through, uh, but it's going to be a good time. So the first objection, if we can get that one up there, is that um, I don't believe in Christianity because Christians are mean. It's pretty tough. Um, but a big reason that more people aren't Christians is because Christians are mean. It's pretty challenging. Um, to, be, to be fair, being nice or agreeable is, is not and should not be up on this board, right? As Christians, we're not called to be nice people, we're not called to be agreeable people, but we are called to be loving and holy. So loving meaning that we act in other people's best interests and holy meaning that we are set apart that we are distinct, we are different from the rest of the world. So um, we only actually have one scripture tonight. Uh, please don't throw your stones. Um, the reason is, this is a conversation that is, that is meant to be had outside of the church walls. And often when you bring up a Bible verse, conversation's over, I've tuned you out, I don't care. Um, I don't believe in what you're talking about, right? So this is the only scripture that we're touching on tonight. So we're gonna make a big deal of it. Um, if you're in the youth ministry, we're gonna lead the way here. So as I say the book of the Bible, we're gonna get like a whoa. As I say the chapter of the Bible, the same thing a little bit louder, whoa. And as I say the verse, I wanna see you like throwing your toupees up in the air, let's get excited. <laughs> It's going to be a good time. Okay, so it is, oh, spoilers. Uh, it is Exodus chapter 20, verse 7. Yeah, so good. How good's the word? It's just, it doesn't get any better. It does not. Okay, so it says, uh, if you're not super familiar with the Bible, uh, this is in uh, Exodus, so second book of the Bible. Uh, it is the Ten Commandments. Everyone knows the Ten Commandments. Uh, here we are. So it says, you shall not take the Lord of the, uh, the name of the Lord, your God, in vain. For the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes the Lord's name in vain. I think this is a, a little bit misunderstood as a scripture. Um, I think that the way that it's taught mostly is like if you stub your toe and you say Jesus, that's taking the Lord's name in vain. I don't think that's what it is, guys. Obviously, that's a bad idea. Don't use Jesus' name as a substitute for a swear word. Just generally pretty wise. Um, but I think what this scripture actually means, to take the Lord's name in vain for uh, the Old Covenant people would be to call yourself by the name of Israel, the nation of Israel, the nation that wrestles with God and not live in a way that honors Him. And so for the New Covenant people, it is to call yourself a Christian and not live in a way that glorifies God. That's what it means to take the Lord's name in vain. Because the tension here is that very often, God will not manifest himself to people, right? He far more often sends and positions us to be a representation of Jesus. So I just want to ask you tonight, like, what do are, what are people think about Jesus based on the way that you talk, by the way that you act, and by the way that you love? Because the truth is, the world is full of Christians who are bearing the, name, the Lord's name in vain. So let's not be those people, right? So good, awesome. Um, it is important here to note that uh, this claim right here is not affected by the morality of Christians, right? If every Christian ever was morally the worst person, that would not affect the claim that a man named Jesus claimed to be God, was crucified, resurrected, proving his claim, and through faith in him, we have eternal life. That claim's just not affected by the morality of Christians, right? It is helpful, though, to point out that Christians are not morally the worst people ever. So let's all take a deep breath, it's okay. It's all right. 
Christians are not morally the worst people ever. And, and in fact, what we have to show for thousands and thousands of years of passionate disciples of Jesus are hospitals, schools, foreign aid, the Love Army, Red Frogs, She Rescue Home, Ivory Project, the list goes on and on and on. What we have as a result of thousands of years of passionate disciples of Jesus is a world that has been unmistakably influenced for good and for God. So good. Can we get that second objection up there from Instagram? So, oh, this is a good one. Alrighty. So, if you have shared your faith, you've, you've tackled this one. So, uh, the objection is that God hates gay people. This is a quote. Um, that God hates gay people, so why would I believe in a God that doesn't support who I love? This one is a, a really pressing topic for today. Because we live in a culture that has very much built an idol out of what's called the authentic self. So who you believe yourself to be, how you identify, to a lot of people in our culture is the most holy and sacred part about who they are. So to question it is to deeply insult and offend people. So as Christians, we need to be really loving and kind and gentle while still standing firm on the truth. And the truth is that before you were in Christ, it doesn't matter what the, what the sin, what the idol was, who you fundamentally were opposed God. The Bible says that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Um, the good news is, though, that while you were still sinners, Jesus died for you. The truth is, God does not hate gay people. God loves gay people so much that he died for them. That's a big deal, guys. It's a big misunderstanding in this conversation. I think that Another problem is that our culture has, in many ways, it's, it's numbed our sense of morality. Before I was a Christian, my moral compass was all over the place. Um, there's a condition called, um, I'll see if I get it right, doesn't matter. Um, it's called uh, congenital insensitivity to pain and anhydrosis. Doesn't really matter that you remember that, I just wanted to flex. Um, so it's a condition that um, people can stand with their hand on a hot plate, be inflicting very severe burns on themselves, and they have no idea. And this is what our culture does to morality. Before I was a Christian, I lived most of my life with my hand on this hot plate. I didn't even realize. Like, I'm not going to get into graphic detail, but what our culture tells us it's okay for teenagers to do and watch is wildly harmful. And the most loving thing to do when you see someone like this is, is to share your testimony. It's to say, man, I didn't realize that my hand was on the hot plate. I didn't realize how destructive I was being. I didn't realize the, the harm that I was causing, but I also didn't realize the freedom that comes from taking your hand off. The joy that comes from knowing Jesus. It's important, again, to note that this is not an objection against Christians. This is not an objection against Christianity. This is saying that if there is a God and he doesn't agree with me, I'm not gonna follow him. That's um, it's a pretty dangerous place to be, really. So I, I think that the best way to address this objection is actually just with real deep, authentic love and discipleship. Yeah. Yeah? yeah? So good. Can we get that next objection up there? So, this one is a cracker. Um, so, science proves that humans came from apes, therefore Genesis is incorrect, and the rest of the Bible has nothing to stand on. It's pretty tough. I love this one. This is a very fun discussion, but Notice that nowhere on this board is the age of the earth. <laughs> nowhere on this board is evolution. 
that you guys didn't even notice until now. Because the truth is, this is not a gospel issue. This is an in-house debate. This is the same as saying, I don't believe that a man named Jesus claimed to be God, was crucified, resurrected, proving his claim, and through him we have eternal life. I don't believe that, because I'm not sure if Christians should get drunk or not. It just doesn't make sense. This is an in-house debate. And, and I realized this, because I was having, don't get me wrong, some absolute cracker debates at work. Um, just really long-winded uh, debates with, about evolution, but something that I realized is that if I was able to convince someone that evolution doesn't account for the origins of life, that there's a serious lack of transitional fossils between species, and that there's some organic mechanisms that are just irreducibly complex, right? If I was able to convince somebody of that, they denounce evolution, we don't have a Christian. We have an atheist who doesn't believe in evolution. Is that our goal? <laughs> I don't think so. Something that um, Dr. Frank Turek says, a question that he asks is, if I was able to answer this question for you, would you be a Christian? Because if the answer to that is no, then we're having a potentially very fun, but ultimately pointless conversation. As far as I'm concerned, this is an in-house debate. There are plenty of Christians who fulfill this criteria very, very strongly, better than I do, who land on either side of this. So let's just be a little bit humble when it comes to this. Because being a Christian is not about committing to a specific interpretation of Genesis. It's just not. Um, I think that as Christians, it's very healthy, healthy um, to have an appreciation for people who land on either side of theological lines, right? So if you want to learn more about, um, if you hold evolution up there with the gospel, um, if you want to learn more about maybe it's not compatible with Genesis, uh, there's this man named uh, Kent Hovind, super entertaining bloke, talks a lot about evolution in the Bible. It's a good time. Um, so if you're in the evolution camp, I encourage you to listen to that fella. If you're in the, um, in the no evolution, bad, scary, um, I'm scared to read the Bible after talking about evolution, that's totally cool. Love you guys. Um, there's, <laughs> um, there's a Bible Project podcast where they don't sort of land either way, but they just go into uh, different, different ways of looking at Genesis. Um, it really helps you look at Genesis with, with just a fresh set of lenses. Um, and there's also hours and hours and hours of very loving in-house debates about evolution. So just dive into those. It's a good time. Alrighty, next evolution, uh, oh, next evolution, oh. Uh, next objection is uh, the problem of evil or the problem of suffering. Um, if I am being honest, this one's probably the best objection to Christianity, hey? Because this one, it's really powerful because there's an emotional side and there's a philosophical side. So the emotional side, uh, if you've been around church for a little bit, especially this congregation, you've had to wrestle through this one, right? Um, it can be phrased something like, uh, if... if if God is real, why is, why is my grandma suffering? Very strong emotional intuition against God there, right? And then there's the philosophical problem of evil, which we're going to get to first because it's just a bit nicer. Um, so it, it goes something like, um, if God is all-powerful and all-good, there can't be suffering. So to address the philosophical problem of evil, um, there's, there's kind of two hidden premises here. Um, and it's helpful to, to sort of think those out with someone. Uh, so the first hidden premise is that um, there can't be any good reasons for God to allow suffering. If you're here this morning, listen to Pastor Dave's preach, or if you spent any amount of time in the Bible looking up suffering, you'll know that you don't have to go far to find some pretty good reasons that God might allow suffering. Like our, our faith was initiated on the cross through Jesus' suffering. And our faith is perfected through, through these trials that we go through, through, this, through these seasons of suffering. You read through Job and you, and you see his life at the end of the book and, and you realize that suffering is not 
bad, right? Um, the second premise that I kind of want to tease out here is um, we live in a culture that, that's very hedonistic, so it means that um, our, our culture is trying to convince us that the, the purpose of our life is to avoid suffering and to seek pleasure. I just want to tell you, church, that's not the point of your life. It's not the point of anyone's life. That's actually, that's, a, that's a, uh, Ecclesiastes 1-2. That's, that's vanity right there, right? Um, and the point of your life is actually to love God. And, and what's, what's kind of confusing to think about is for you to be able to love God, which is the point of your life, there will be suffering. I've got a little argument up here to, to demonstrate that. So premise one, if we could get it up there, is that the point of your life is to love God. Premise two is that for there to be love, there must be free will. You can't love if you're a robot. So premise, uh, the conclusion then would be uh, if there is free will, oh, no, it's premise three, yeah. If there is free will, people are going to use that free will for great goods, but also great evils. So then the conclusion is for us to be able to love God, there will be suffering. And the truth is, church, before you were born, God knew all of the sins you were ever going to commit, all of the hurt, all of the pain that you were going to cause others and that was going to happen to you, and he chose to let you live in case you might love God. I don't think I'm ever going to value love that much. I hope that I do. I don't think I'm ever going to understand that God values love so much that he would allow you to go about sinning and causing other people hurt so that you might love him one day. That's beautiful. Um, the emotional problem of suffering, I think, is, is best answered by the fact that we don't serve a distant God. We don't serve a God who is sitting far from his creation, watching as his creation sin against each other and cause immense amounts of suffering. We serve a God who is intimately involved in his creation, a God that took on the suffering of the world and that through him we may have eternal life. We don't serve a God that is distant. We serve a God that intimately loves every person to have ever existed and suffers with them. Yeah, man. Um, Ethan, Ethan Beer has a, a beautiful song called Room 18 where he's really wrestling through the, the emotional problem of suffering. And at the, at the kind of climax of the song, there's this moment where God takes over and it's very similar, very reminiscent of, of Job, where you just get a bit of a heavenly perspective on things. Um, I definitely encourage you to, to go listen to it. It's a beautiful song. Um, be ready to cry, is what it is. Um, but the Bible says, better is one day in his courts than a thousand elsewhere. If we had to suffer a thousand years, it would be made up for by one year in his presence. And what Jesus offers us is eternity in his presence. Some philosophi uh, philosophers, whatever, um, some <laughs> philosophical-minded peoples, um, they, they think that for there to be a maximally good existence, there has to have first been one that is less so. So a way to think of this is um, if you come from a place of family dysfunction and you're put in a place of function in a church, right, you're much more likely to appreciate that and want it to continue on. The, the contrast is that if you've come from, from a healthy place, sometimes complacency creeps in and you're put in another healthy place and maybe you drop the ball, maybe you don't appreciate the, the function, the beauty that comes from, from godly relationships with people and maybe you bring dysfunction. 
So that's, that's just something to stew on. Um, yeah, do you guys feel good about that? I feel pretty good about that. I feel like we got both. Cool. Um, I think that we might skip over the next one. Um, so we're going to jump straight to the final objection, which is my favorite. It's the best. Because this, this objection is the one that, um, if we go back to Dr. Frank Turek's question, if I was able to answer this, would you be a Christian? This is the one that most commonly, you're going to get a yes. It's just awesome. It's, there is not enough evidence. This one's a banger. Um, because maybe, maybe they just haven't heard the evidence. And that's all right. Because that's why you guys are there, right? So um, the way that I like to think about evidence for Christianity, I like to think of it as there's kind of three different categories. So there's historical, there's philosophical, and there's experiential evidence for Christianity. So the uh, first one is historical evidence for Christianity. This claim right here, this is a historical claim. We are claiming that a man named Jesus claimed to be God, was crucified, resurrected, and that through him we have eternal life, right? That's a historical claim. So then that's exciting because we can use historical methods to either prove or falsify that claim. And what's awesome about Christianity is it's a religion with deep, deep historical roots. So we have great historical evidence for Christianity. Um, there's a man, uh, Dr. Gary Habermas, he's developed what he calls the minimal facts argument for belief in the resurrection. He's written hundreds of books, I think. I don't know, that's a lot. Maybe not hundreds. <laughs> he's written a lot of books. Um, he's got a big one coming out. I think he said like 1,500 pages or something, which is stupid. But man really believes in resurrection, I guess. Um, but he's, he's developed this minimal facts argument, which is pretty much where he takes facts that are agreed upon by both Christian and uh, atheist or, or skeptic um, scholars, these facts that are agreed upon uh, by, by everyone, right? Um, and, and he just kind of talks about, like, what, what are the different uh, hypotheses that we can put forward to explain the evidence? Uh, we don't have a ton of time, so I'm not going to go into it, but I feel like it's pretty self-explanatory. So if we can get those up, Dr. Harry Mass's, Habit, Harry Mass, Habermas, Dr. Habermas's uh, minimal facts argument. So the first one is that Jesus died by crucifixion. Second one is that Jesus was buried by Joseph of Arimathea. The third is that the tomb was found empty. If we could get the fourth one up as well. Um, the early, uh, that early on in the development of Christianity, the followers of Jesus uh, experienced something that caused them to zealously preach the resurrection. Uh, the fifth one is that uh, the belief in the, res the b that belief, there we go, in resurrection started among people who would have been unlikely to accept it um, in uh, the apostles who did not accept the resurrection, the unbelieving brother of Jesus, and a persecutor of early Christians, which was Paul. So these are facts that are unanimously agreed upon by both Christians and non-Christians, and we're not going to go into the competing hypothesis, but that's Christianity, man. You don't have to do much of a stretch to go that the best explanation for that evidence is that Jesus bodily rose. That's a big deal. From, his, from history, we can prove resurrection. That's powerful, guys. The um, second category for uh, evidence for Christianity is philosophical. Philosophical pr um, proofs for Christianity are really powerful because you don't need to rely on somebody uh, trusting our historical processes. You don't have to uh, rely on somebody trusting your testimony. You're appealing to um, rational faculties that God has put in everyone. 
So that's powerful, because we're starting from the same place, right? So um, plenty of philosophical arguments out there for the existence of God. My favorite, my go-to, is one by uh, Dr. William Lane Craig. It's a version of what's called the Kalam cosmological argument. Again, don't remember that word, it's not important. Um, but the argument goes something like this. So there's three premises and then a conclusion. So everything that begins to exist has a cause. Can you say that? So good, all still awake, that's good. Uh, the second premise is the universe began to exist. And then the conclusion is uh, the universe has a cause. It's pretty exciting. Um, <laughs> and then what can we infer based on just that? We can infer that because it created whatever the cause was, because it created time, space, and energy, uh, time, space, and matter, yeah, that's the one, um, that it is timeless, spaceless, and immaterial. It's pretty wild. It also has to be a person because it has agency. It, cho it chose when to act. I can drop a pen and gravity doesn't choose whether it wants to act or not. It doesn't sometimes flow. Only people have causal agency. So just from, just from philosophy, we have a timeless, spaceless, immaterial, immeasurably powerful, personal creator of the universe. That's wild. That's so good. The, uh, the third form of evidence for Christianity is experiential evidence. This one is great because you don't have to try. <laughs> if you've hung around with Jesus for any amount of time, you just see some stuff, man. You see blind eyes open. You see people walk up out of wheelchairs. You see broken bones healed. You see emotional healing. You see families brought back together. Experiential evidence for Christianity is extremely strong because you have personally, if you're sitting here, and, and not an atheist, uh, if you're sitting here and you're a Christian, you've experienced the redempting power of Jesus in your life. That's extremely powerful evidence. I mean, what do we have in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, right? We have people's accounts of what Jesus did and said in their lifetime. What do you have as a Christian? You have examples of what Jesus has said and done in your lifetime. You have extremely powerful evidence that you don't have to think about. It's a byproduct of being close with Jesus. That's amazing. So what do we do? What do we do? So what? What does it matter? If you're in camp number one, I just really hope that tonight has just lit a bit of a fire in you. Because the, the tension is, the phrase, uh, preach the gospel always and use words when necessary. I think for most of us, that when necessary thing is a lot more necessary, right? Because that phrase is about living a life of integrity, not avoiding preaching the gospel. So as a result of tonight, I pray that you'll just stand firm on the gospel, that you'll just be bold in proclaiming your faith because it's not your job to have memorized a 30 minute presentation, not a fair expectation. Um, it's not a bad idea, but, um, <laughs> but your job is just to stand firm on the gospel, knowing that there is a case. And I actually, uh, I've, I've got prepared the most powerful phrase that you can ever use in evangelism. You guys ready? It's, I don't know. It's just solid. You don't have to pretend. You don't have to make stuff up. There's so many great answers out there. There's been thousands of years of very smart Christians thinking about stuff. And what, it, and what I don't know does is tomorrow, when you're back in the break room, you can say, hey man, you brought up the problem of evil. And um, I went home and did some research. And uh, there's a video on, on capturing Christianity that's really intriguing. Can I send it to you? And then you've brought it back up. And that's two days in a row talking about Jesus. Yeah, good. If you're in camp number two, I pray that tonight has just lit a bit of a fire in you again. Same thing, actually. Um, and I pray that you'll just stand firm on the gospel. I pray that you'll be bold in sharing your faith. 
Um, I, I hope that there's been a couple of names thrown out there maybe that you haven't heard of before, a couple of ideas that you can maybe dive into a little deeper. Um, gonna spend a bit of time talking to camp number three. Um, if you're here and you're an atheist, I just wanna say I'm stoked that you stuck around, hey. Sometimes it can be like really uncomfortable sitting in a place where somebody's talking and you don't agree with it. So if you stuck around, I'm super grateful, hey. Um, and, and we're gonna go into a bit of a moment where I'm gonna call you to action. Because when rational people are exposed to new evidence, they act upon that evidence. It's a rational thing to do. They consider the evidence and then they act upon it. So if you're still in that space of considering, myself, many other people, we'd love to dive a bit deeper into this stuff with you. But if you're in that place of having considered the evidence and as a rational person, you wanna act on that, we're gonna give you a bit of an invitation. So if we can just get everybody to bow our heads, close our eyes. Thank you for listening. We pray that this message inspires you to unmistakably influence your world for good and for God. Go ahead and share it with a friend. And can I invite you to connect with us on one of our many social media platforms as well. Most importantly, if you made a decision to follow Jesus, I want to say congratulations. This is the beginning of a life-changing journey. We'd love to see you at one of our many City Point Church services around the world this Sunday. And you can find out more about our service times and locations at citypointchurch.com. We would be so thrilled to see you there.